So, welcome to week 10 of the study of Galatians. We're in chapter 2, and again, Paul is uh, establishing his authority uh, in these first two chapters. In verses 6 through 10, he wrote of how the leaders of the Jerusalem congregation, Peter, James, and John, gave him the right hand of fellowship, and in doing so, they were recognizing the call of God on Paul's life and his mission to the Gentiles. In verses uh, for this week, 11 through 14, he again speaks of his authority by telling us how he rebuked Peter for not acting within the truth of the gospel. So let's read this, uh, verses 11 through 16, I guess. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that in their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not a Jew. Think about this. How this would bolster his message that he's about to give, that he was so confident in the truth of the gospel that he preached and his call that he would actually rebuke one of the twelve who he thought was not acting in line with the scope of the good news. Because we all accept Paul's authority. It's kind of hard for me to to read and, and do commentary on these passages because we all accept Paul's authority. And so it's like preaching to the choir. But evidently, that was not the case in Galatia. The good news is because we all accept his authority, we can kind of take some time to uh, talk about some of the other concepts, some of the tougher concepts that we're going to come across in this letter. And with these verses today, we come face to face with table fellowship which is a key to the, to the book of Galatians. Table fellowship is one of those things that doesn't mean much to us in our day. But in the first century, to the Jewish people, table fellowship was of great importance. We also find within the verse, these verses today the first occurrence of the phrase works of the law, which we're going to look at later. But first, if we look at eating together today, it means little to nothing to us. We eat with people who are nearly strangers all the time. Business lunches, we eat lunches with people at work, we eat with people of differing faiths all the time. Did you ever feel a bit uncomfortable eating with someone who said a prayer over the food and found out he was not of the same faith? Maybe he, it happened at work and the person was a Muslim or a Hindu or some other thing. And how about you? Did you ever feel uncomfortable about saying a blessing over the food in the presence of people who you knew were not of the same faith? Well, that's just a small taste of what table fellowship meant in the first century. And I say a taste because, well, it's uncomfortable for us. It was just not done in the first century, Israel. And we'll get to why before the day is out. To give you an idea of the importance, consider this. You've heard me say that the vast majority of the Mishnah and the Talmud have to do with purity laws. Well, the vast majority of that, of those purity laws, have to do with food and table fellowship. It was that important. Now, we could go into the Mishnah and see what is said of Jews eating with non-Jews, and we would find 
traditions that said, you do not eat with Gentiles or participate in their idolatry. And then we could find things like this quote I found from Avodah Zarah. It says, if an Israelite was eating with a Gentile at the table and leaving in his presence a flagon of wine on the table and another flagon on the side table, left him and went out, what is on the table is forbidden, but what is on the side table is permitted. And so when we read this, it would seem just the opposite. It would seem to indicate that table fellowship with non-Jews was acceptable if one was careful. So what is one to think if he's using the Mishnah and the Talmud for his source? Because you can find either tradition. You see, there's a problem here, and the problem is this. The Mishnah is actually written in 200 common era. The Talmud, which is commentary and arguments about the Mishnah much later. Well, 200 common era is 150 years after the date we're looking at for the writing of Galatians. And so you can, as you can imagine, it's not a very good source because things change in 150 years, right? As an example, think back 150 years from today to 1870 and tell me that things are the same. Are they the same? You see, if we go back 150 years, we're going to find the church didn't accept many things that it now accepts. There was no inclusive church. There was a church where you conform to its principles instead of today where the church is conforming to the sin of the people. Well, when we look at the customs within the Mishnah, it's much like that. They were written 150 years later and so we have the same problem. So if we want to get to the to the truth of the idea of table fellowship in the first century, where would we go? Where would we go to find something? Well, one of the best places we could go would be the Gospels and the writings of the disciples. They're older than the Mishnah and the Talmud. And the Gospels and the writings of the disciples are actually the best source we have as to what things were like in the first century. Because unlike the Talmud and the Mishnah, they were written during that period of time. Let's look at what the Messianic writings have to say. We'll just look at one passage because this is going to to do for our purposes. Acts chapter 11 verses 2 and 3 says, And so when Peter went to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, You went into the house of an uncircumcised man and ate with them. And what we find when we look at the Messianic writings or the the, uh, Gospels is that Table fellowship with non-Jews in Israel and Jerusalem was not allowed. And here we have Peter rebuked by other followers of Yeshua for eating with non-Jews. In the first century, the rabbis had developed so many fences and laws around food and around the purity laws of the Torah that almost any interaction with non-Jews was not permissible, not possible. And the reason is simple. So many things came to bear. The clean and the unclean food laws, eating of blood, the purity laws, not to even mention offerings uh, offered to idols. All these were of great concern if one was going to eat with a Gentile. There would be also be concerns whether the food was offered to an idol or whether it was a sacrifice or whether it was a wine libation. There would be concerns about blood. Was the animal killed properly or was it found dead? Concerns about the vessels it was cooked in, were they also used for unclean animals? Were you able to trust the the person preparing the food? 
If you went into a home, would you come face to face with household gods? All of these things would be a concern if you were a first century Jewish person. So here's what I think. In the first century, particularly in the land of Israel, eating with non-Jews was forbidden. That may have been more relaxed in the diaspora, but pretty much it was the law of the land in the first century, Israel. Let me just say as an aside, I want to I say this be, as, as an aside today. A note on rabbinic literature. Because if you've been here for a while, you're going to note that I use far less quotes from rabbinic literature than I used to from the Mishnah, the Talmud, and the Midrash than I used to in the past. And this is a perfect example of why. Because when the Lord sent me to preach, he said, I want you to go out, I want you to go preach John 4.23, which says, Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. Well, when Yeshua says this, and has now, when he says, and has now come, he's seeing that the disciples were worshiping the Father in spirit and truth. And then he says, and God's worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. That tells me that I have to get to the same place of worship and truth that the disciples in Yeshua had in the first century. With that in mind, read the book of Acts. And the Messianic writings. And what you come face to face with is that they did not, did not go outside the leadership of the community of Yeshua for teachings on halakha or teachings in general. When a question of halakha arose, they didn't go to Gamliel. They didn't go to the Sanhedrin. In fact, the decisions that we do have recorded for us actually ran contrary to those determinations of the rabbis in the Sanhedrin. As an example, when the question of the purity of a non-Jew and table fellowship with non-Jews came up, who rendered the decision? The Holy Spirit rendered the decision. Right? Well, when you consider those things, and when you consider that Judaism, after the destruction of the temple, took a steady path away from those truths in the first century, as did Christianity, and couple that with the fact that First, the, that the first century or first rabbinic and Christian writings that we use as sources are from the second century and beyond. It leaves those things for me questionable. Think about it, because they were written much later than the first century. They often reflect a change in thought and practice, as we spoke of earlier. And not just that, but if you're looking at rabbinic traditions that are supposedly from the first century and before. Those opinions and thoughts were written down from someone's memory and then filtered through the lens of later traditions. So let me ask you this. Think about this. The church, for the most part, follows the teachings of the church fathers. By doing that, have they ended up with a true understanding of who Messiah Yeshua is? Have they ended up being true examples of Messiah? Are they worshiping the Father in spirit and truth? Well, it's something we all have to ask ourselves, but let me say for me, I don't think so much. I think not so much, right? I ask the same question of Judaism. The Jewish people have followed the fathers of Judaism. Have they ended up with any knowledge of Messiah at all? Again, my answer would be I don't think so. Do they even know his name? 
Are they worshiping the Father in spirit and truth? I don't think so. Well, then why on earth would I want to follow anyone's teachings who have ended up not knowing the Messiah or worshiping the Father in spirit and truth? Why would I want to follow that stuff? Why would I want to consider that? Here's what I think. To make a longer story shorter. In the last few years, I've had a change in thought about the Mishnah and the Talmud and some of these things. I've come to the realization that our Bibles really define themselves. It defines itself. We don't need other men to interpret the Bible for us. We have a far wiser source. It's called the Spirit of God. God gave us a book that each and every word is defined for us within the text itself. And guess what? If we're stumped, he gave us the spirit to aid us in our understanding. You see, that's the pattern left for us in the Messianic writings. God protects his word and it's all sufficient. So if I do use commentaries, I look for something that's written with this fresh perspective, this fresh approach, using those same guidelines that the word of God actually defines itself. And I'll be the first to admit, you know, if you read rabbinic writings, they, they can reflect some wonderful sentiment. But they also represent some horrendous error. And the problem is when people start to read the wonderful sentiment, one could get so caught up in the beauty that they fail to distinguish it from the horrendous error. I've had many a sleepless night worrying over those who have come to KSS and listened to me quote some of these wonderful passages, this wonderful sentiment of those writings and then ran out and by the sources and got caught up in the air and left the faith. Well, anyway, that's enough of that rabbit trail. But understand, that's why I now put less emphasis on those things and more just on what's in the Bible. Enough of that excursus, right? So, back to the text. And what we have here is Peter who received the word of the Lord concerning the non-Jewish believers being clean because God has made them clean as he testified in Acts chapter 10. Peter is also the one who extended the right hand to Paul in Jerusalem, lending his support and agreement to the gospel that Paul preached, as we read in verses 9 and 10 of this chapter. And in keeping with the truth of that, he was eating and fellowshipping with non-Jews as he should. Then some men come from Jerusalem, and the text says from James, and Peter backs away from the non-Jews instead of defending the gospel and the word of the Lord he's received, he backs away in typical Peter, people-pleasing fashion. Right? Now, we read this and we think that it, it says, and they came from James. And we think, well, James must have had a change of mind about the Gentiles. We think he's backing up on the decision that he made. And the right hand he extended to Paul. Well, I don't believe that the phrase, certain men came from James, means either of those things. Just because it says they came from James doesn't mean that these men were even aware of the private meeting. Remember, it was a private meeting. And if the, the, uh, uh, with Peter, James, John, and Paul. After, after all, you know, if I have a private meeting, if I have a private meeting with someone, I don't run right out and tell everybody what was said in that private meeting. Particularly if it, if it doesn't concern them. 
And so in that regard, the circumcision and conversion and preaching of the gospel to Gentiles was not a a real priority in Jerusalem as it was, say, in Galatia or Rome or anywhere in the diaspora. And so it's quite possible that these men from James knew nothing about James's decision or convictions on this matter, but are still operating out of these long-standing customs and traditions. So anyway, Peter says in verse 14, But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in the presence of all, If you being a Jew live like Gentiles and not like Jews, how is it that you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? And so Paul shines the light on Peter's hypocrisy and tells us, Not only did Peter draw away from eating with Gentiles, but evidently his message to the non-Jews changed as well because it says, compelled them to live as Jews. And so his his message started to conform to that of the circumcision group as well. To say that he's compelling Gentiles to live like Jews tells me that, that he backed up on his message. And that these men arrived, he started telling people that these people needed to be circumcised and to live as Jews. And Paul says that was not in line with the truth of the gospel. What is the truth of the gospel in this matter? Well, let's go to Genesis chapter 22 and verse 15. And we get the good news for us here. This is the good news. Way back here in Genesis, by the way. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your seed, all nations on the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. When God says, I swear by myself, Let me say something. You can take it to the bank because he's saying there's nothing greater I can swear by but by myself. And then he tells Abraham the good news. And the good news is through your seed, all nations of the earth will be blessed. And so for the gospel to be complete, can the whole earth be Jewish? Can the whole earth convert to being Jewish? God didn't say nation. He said nations will be blessed. And who will, who will they be blessed through? Well, it said Abraham's seed, through your seed. And what does Paul say about the seed in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16? He says, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say into seeds, meaning many people, but to, but to your seed, meaning one person who is Messiah. And so the nations are going to be blessed through Messiah. And that's the good news. Isaiah said the same thing. Listen to what he says in chapter 56, verses 6 and 7. And the foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord and to worship him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. That's speaking... Amen. That's speaking of the kingdom. 
You see, in order for the gospel to be complete, it must go out to the nations and they must remain the nations, each with their own distinctions and each following God through relationship with God. That is the truth of the gospel. Jewish people must remain Jewish people and nations, the nations, must remain non-Jews. And if you're outside of that, you're outside of the truth of the gospel. That does not mean that the nations will continue in their sin and their idolatry, but they'll separate themselves from those things and conform to what's required of them in God's Torah. And they will do this by living out the commands through the example of Messiah Yeshua and through the leading of the Spirit. But they will not become Jewish, or as Paul says, live as Jews. They will remain separate, distinct, and still loving God and His people. And so Paul says next, in kind of a tongue-in-cheek fashion, he says, We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Messiah Yeshua. Notice the phrase, we who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. That, does that sound like Paul? Huh? Does that sound like something Paul would say? And speaking of those in Galatia, I don't think he would call them Gentile sinners. Right? In speaking of the believers, he knows that they're not sinners anymore. They might still sin now and then, but they're not sinners in that their life is representative of people who aren't the people of God. But they've been forgiven. Their lives no longer conform to that of sinners. Have, uh, it, so what is he doing here? Well, I, I pulled something out of a commentary after I just said I don't use commentaries anymore. But this is a good one, and it's it's called The Epistle to the Galatians. It's by James Dunn. It's one of the few good uh, commentaries on Galatians, and you can get it at Amazon. It's one that's still available. He says this, Paul was probably echoing the language used by the individuals from James when they spoke against the Jewish Christian table fellowship with Gentile believers. Such table fellowship with Gentile sinners was unacceptable. And so again, this, he says, he says, no one who is justified by works of the law. That's the next thing I want to look at. This is the very first use of the phrase in all of Paul's writings, works of the law. And it's used only in scripture by Paul. It's used four times in, here in Galatians and once in the book of Romans. The problem is Paul gives no real definition of what he means. And so for years... There was nothing to compare this phrase to. It didn't appear in any Jewish writings of the first century or even later. There was nothing to compare it to. So what happened was the church interpreted it in light of their own doctrine, their own teaching. And what is the doctrine of the church from the second century and beyond? Second, third, and fourth centuries. Well, the Torah is no longer useful in the life of a believer. Yeshua did away with it. So we get interpretations like this one. I pulled this from Matthew Henry's commentary to show how we interpret it. The deeds of the law are meant, works done in obedience to it as performed by sinful men which are very imperfect. And so we get commentaries and pastors that tell us that works of the law are done by those who are trying to keep God's law. Well, that's partially true. That is partially what it means. Of course, works of the law would be those things done in keeping the law. But 
we now have a fuller definition because since the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we now have something to compare this phrase to because this very phrase was used in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So we can find out what works of the Torah meant in the first century. So let's read from the Dead Sea Scrolls here. We now have written you to you some of the works of the Torah, those which we determined would be beneficial for you and your people because we have seen that you possess insight and knowledge of the Torah. Understand all these things and beseech him to set your counsel straight and so keep away from the evil thoughts in the counsel of Belial. Then you shall rejoice in the end of time when you find the essence of our words to be true and it will be reckoned to you as righteousness in that you have done what is right and good before him to your own benefit and to that of Israel. And so what we have here is exactly the same phrase, only of course it was written in Hebrew. In the Greek, Paul is writing this letter to the Galatians in Greek. He uses ergon for works and nomos for law. In the Qumran text, it says ma'asei ha-Torah, or works of the Torah. Same thing. Ma'asei Torah, in this document, is works of the law, but it's keeping Torah as per the Qumran sect. Notice it says, we have given you works of the law which we determined would be beneficial to you. These folks being written had a knowledge of Torah. That's clearly stated in the, in the letter. They were told that they were given works of the Torah. And if you keep these works of the Torah, as this sect keeps Torah, and not as the folks they call Belial, which I should add is more than likely the Pharisees, because they say it will be credited to them as righteousness. And I say the word Belial here refers to the Pharisees because the Pharisees were thought of as sons of darkness by this group. And Belial is the prince of darkness. And so probably in reference to the Pharisees, we can't be sure, but I would say it is. But what I want you to see is that the works of the Torah is not the commands of the Torah. But it refers to the way you keep the commands of the Torah. More specifically, by whose standards you keep them. The works of the Torah, or how you keep the Torah, became an identifier of the sect of Judaism that you belong to. The Pharisees had their works of the Torah. The Essenes had their works of the Torah. Not only that, the disciples had their works of the Torah. Right? Let me ask you this. With that in mind, if you follow the Torah as Yeshua did, do you have works of the Torah? You do. If you follow through the leading of the Spirit of God, are you keeping works of the Torah? Well, yes, you are. The works of the Torah, not as the Pharisees or as the Essenes, but as per the Spirit of God. This definition works perfectly here because Paul is not speaking of Torah commands. There's no Torah command that Gentiles be circumcised, except in rare instances like Passover. So when he says works of Torah in regard to conversion or table fellowship, he's not speaking of the laws of God, but he's speaking of the works of the law of those who came down from James. So works of the Torah of the Pharisees is this. You must be circumcised. In other words, you must convert to living as a Jew in order for Jews to have table fellowship with you. The good news is this. Through Yeshua, all nations have been blessed. 
and through faith in Yeshua, if you are one of the nations, you've been accepted and you have a new identity. And your new identity is you are in Messiah. That said, I also want to say this because I know someone may misunderstand what I said. Make no mistake, I don't think and don't think that I believe that there are Torah commands that can justify you. I believe that living out the Torah commands of God through the leading of the Spirit can make you a just man in that your life is righteous. But those commands, no matter how you live them out, cannot atone for your sins and thereby justify you. There's a difference between just and being justified. There's a difference between living a just life and being justified. And there's only one way that you can be justified, and that's through faith in Messiah Yeshua. But if we can understand what Paul is referring to here, it can mean the difference of our living out a just life by the commands of God through the leading of the Spirit and ignoring or ignoring the commands of Torah as has been done in the past. It's also important to, in, in the regard that understanding there's a difference between relying on some form of works of the law for justification and just living lives that are just by keeping the commands of God.